Well, hey, welcome. Glad to have you back. Welcome to CISO Talk, another episode of CISO Talk. Matter of fact, this is episode four uh, in our master series class, uh, Lightning in a Bottle, trying to share uh, experience and perspective, information to up and coming CISOs, uh, share it amongst ourselves um, and uh, kind of help the community grow and expand. So we have a great panel here today. They're all seasoned veterans, been on the show before, getting uh, sort of the power panel back together here. Matt, it was great to uh, be with you. Uh, I haven't talked in a while. You've been a busy man. I think we all have. It's great to be back, Mitch. Uh, I hope everybody has done uh, really well over the last month and a half or so. So it, it has definitely been a while. And uh, Matt Newfield. Matt, I mean, you know, tell folks, I don't know if I ever give you much chance to really introduce yourself. Tell people about what you do. I I am what's known as the Chief Security and Infrastructure Officer at Unisys Corporation. So I'm the uh, CISO. I'm the CIO. I also run security services and security engineering for the corporation. Busy person. Busy guy. Well, um, so speaking of some other great folks we haven't talked to in a while, Miranda, welcome. Glad to have you back. Tell folks about yourself. Thanks, Mitch. It's great to be back. And it's great to see things kind of getting back into the swing of things after COVID. I know everybody's travel schedules are really starting to pick up. Uh, since we've last spoken, I think I, I think I have changed jobs since then. So I'm now the Director of Cyber Threat Operations at Orbia. We're a manufacturing company uh, with plants in 41 different locations. So it's it's a global operation. It's really cool to see. Fantastic. And certainly not least, but but last on the list, uh, my good friend uh, and now actually colleague in inside of TechStrong. We've been colleagues for a long time, Mike. Mike Rothman, you've I'm not sure if you left the dark side, came to the dark side or you just always been on the dark it's, side. It's all dark all the time, Mitch. You, you know that. Um, so obviously very excited to be back on, on CISO Talk in my new role. Right. So as with Miranda, I have a, a, a new job. I have joined TechStrong as Chief Strategy Officer, as well as the head of TechStrong Research. So uh, we're going to be doing some some really cool stuff. I mean, again, I'm just couldn't be more excited to work with my old dear friends uh, Alan and Mitch, um, and and really, you, you know, kind of continue to push the thinking forward in terms of what's possible as we start to intersect DevOps security and cloud native infrastructure, all of which seems Matt runs for basically his company. So, you know, he's our guy. Matt's our guy right there. You're, you're uh, a test but great case to be there. here. And uh, I know we've got stuff. So I, I, as much as I would like to talk about me the whole time, uh, we do have some stuff that uh, we do need to get through. Yeah, enough of me talking about me. What do you think about me? You know, <laughs> that conversation. Okay, so here's our topic. We're in uh, episode four of our master series class. You know, Matt, you, we, we talk about this so often. Um, you know, the idea of planning and preparing and how important that is. But on the other hand, recognizing that I like to say, as soon as you hit save on any plan, it's already out of date, right? <laughs> so, because we live in this changing world. And when it comes to preparedness for cyber attacks, threat response, um, you know, strategies for, for how we manage that on an ongoing basis and don't become complacent, like I've got a plan, we practice it good, let's move on to the next thing. Well, wrong, because you probably need to rethink the plan over and over. I mean, you, you have the practical experience of doing that for a very large organization. Yeah, look, this is this to me of everything we talk about is 
is one of the topics that surprises me the most when I'm out in market. You know, the joke in the 90s and early 2000s that we all remember is the, the book that would sit behind the head of security, the head of infrastructure in their office. And you would ask them if you were doing an assessment, um, what do you do if whatever happens? They're like, hold on one second. They would turn around and they pull the book down and they flip through. I'm like, really? Is that how football games are played? Is that how a race car driver works? When a surgeon is having an emergency, they go, hold on, everybody. Let me get the book out and figure out what's going on. <laughs> and Google that. <laughs> let me. Well, not back in the day. This is all pre-Google, but th- it, it still surprises me today that people don't realize we have to build muscle memory and we have to constantly fail in safe spaces and and nobody take that out of context. I mean, in the a test, right? You don't want to be failing in the real world. We have Miranda here who is doing this for, you know, manufacturing and IOT and Mike, who's been in this field forever. And I do this across the world. It's really building out that muscle memory. And what we want to do today is really talk about the practical applications. You know, how do you do it? Um, what does good look like? And to dispel a, a theory a lot of people have, which is when you practice and test your protocols for response that you have to pass, which I'm just going to say it. I'm going to give the answer away. If you pass, you didn't actually do the test. You failed already. You cannot pass. A pass is a fail. Stop it. And I thought that would just be a really wonderful conversation because a lot of up and coming systems don't know how to do this. They don't know how to talk about it. And they don't actually know what we're talking about. There are two aspects of, of that, Matt, right? One is managing up and the other is managing down, yep. right? So when you kind of set up a test in your environment intentionally, to push on and really to find soft spots, right? I mean, that's why we do those tests is to find soft spots, to find holes in our policies, to find operational, you know, kind of aspects that that aren't as tight as they need to be. So we're basically setting this up to really try to understand what we really have to work on. That has to be communicated. And you just said that, right? That has to be communicated to the team so that they're not deflated, right? And especially the younger and this is probably ageist for me to say, right? But the younger your team, right, the more sensitive they seem to be to, you know, kind of not being able to handle failure, adversity, et cetera. So us as leaders, right, us as CISOs, we need to kind of bring them through a process to help them understand that it is okay that if you're not failing, you're not pushing far enough, right? I try to impart that to my kids. I try to impart that to folks that I work with. Um, and it still is just like, oh my God, uh, you know, I've never failed. And then the helicopters come in and, you know, I haven't gotten a call from anybody's <laughs> mom lately, but I'm waiting, right? I'm just waiting for, for when that kind of thing happens. Matt's cracking up, looking at me like, you dang millennials just can't take bad criticism. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I actually flip it around. I've actually found in my experience that when we say younger in age, they do handle it well, where I actually find people handle it poorly is Mike, it's us. Mm. Especially if we've been at that organization for a long time, it's what do you mean you're calling my kid ugly? I've done it this way my whole career. Who are you to tell me, Mr. or Mrs. 25 year old or 30 year old? how to do things. I was doing this in mainframe days. So it, it is ages, but on both sides, 
right? It's, it is difficult. Um, and when Miranda and I work together and we've worked together in other organizations, you know, if you would go in and do these tests, some of the responses, it, it wasn't the new person. It wasn't the older person that, you know, the seasoned person, it was both. They just couldn't get it. And, and you hit the nail on the head and, and Miranda, I'd love to know, since you said you're newer in your organization, how you're approaching this, but it's, it's that up and down and sideways communications, setting the expectations with a board, your peers, your staff that we're going to fail this. And it's okay as long as we stay in our, our boundaries. So Miranda, you just started an organization recently. How do you handle that given, given your very stressful role? Well, I don't know if you also had this this sort of like moment of realization uh, coming from a security company now, now into industry. Uh, but one of the things that was super eye opening for me was like, you know, Matt and I worked together in a security company in an MSSP. And so when we would practice things like crisis management or cyber simulations, even when you're talking to other people in non-technical roles, they had a foundational understanding of what the heck you're talking about and why they're here. When I ran a simulation uh, with my new company in the manufacturing sector, and you start pulling in PR and legal and HR, and why am I here? This is a cyber incident. Just go talk to the techies. And so it's not only just like, do you have to bring them to the table and force them to test the plan, but you have to kind of overcome that cultural challenge of like, why, why am I here? What's my role in a cyber crisis as well? Um, because there is a role for everybody to play, right? If, if your company's name is in the news, your PR person better know what they're talking about, right? I, I couldn't agree. I'll, I'll give a fun story. And, and I may have said this in another episode, but I'll keep it at a high level. Back when Mike and I were younger um, in the day, one of the things we used to do in company was uh, tabletops. And I had been asked to go do a tabletop at a company that was a multi-hour drive from my home office. Went in, we did the tabletop. It went fine. You know, we make phone calls to certain people. And even on the voicemails we left, we said things like, as previously discussed, this is a tabletop exercise. And then we would act like there was a breach. Mm-hmm. Went home afterwards. I got a call from the CEO that evening. And uh, after a string of vulgarities, he told me to get in my car and get my blankety blank, blank, blank back up there. And, you know, as a younger engineer, you know, you sit there and you're driving and there are no cell phones and you're like, I wonder what I did. I, it was a tabletop exercise. Pull in, a lot of cars at this building. I go in, lights are on, their boardroom is filled with people. And I walk in, they're like, it's about time. He did a press release on a breach because of your tabletop. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Who's he? And that's the head of PR. And he goes, yeah, you left me a voicemail. I'm like, the one that said, and I read it out. He goes, well, I wasn't really listening. I just heard the end and I did a press release. And the CEO is like, well, what should we do? And I'm like, well, fire him because he broke. Not only did he not listen to the voicemail, but he broke the protocols we had developed because he had no muscle memory. He had never done it before. And then we had to figure out how to claw back a press release in the age of print. And TV you're trying so. to avoid. <laughs> so it That's goes more horror stories that I've heard. <laughs> but but these things happen. And again, we were able to do it and, you know, they, it all worked out. But this is why practicing is so important, because if otherwise people don't know what to do. 
I mean, in the heat of the moment, in the heat of a crisis, when Miranda hires a red team or a purple team exercise, people think they know, but you don't. And it doesn't matter what analogy you use. You could pull down, you know, a sports analogy. You could pull down a race car analogy. You could pull down a chef analogy. You know, if you're sitting on the line in a restaurant trying to cook meals on a Friday night and, you know, the beef stroganoff comes in, you're like, hold on, everybody. And you got to pull your, this is a problem. And you have to practice and practice and practice. And you have to fail and make nasty stroganoff many, many times before you can move on to the next dish. So were you seeing that, Maria? Did you pass your first exercise? Uh, I mean, for me, I don't know if there's ever really such a thing as a pass or fail. I think there's lessons learned every single time, right? Did we do amazingly? No. (laughs) But I think that helps to uncover, you know, some of the issues in advance. Personally, I'm a big advocate, too, of not just relying on tests. Uh, like testing, because people know when it's a test, the pressure, even if you say act like it's a real world scenario, the pressure's off to an extent. And so one of the things that I think we did really well, uh, and that I'm trying to instill in my new company is, you know, use your crisis plan for watch and warning scenarios as well. You know, so when Log4J happened, uh, when the Russia-Ukraine war broke out, right, were we directly impacted at the time? No, but much like you would have a tornado warning if it's coming inbound, right? You need to you need to shore up, right? You need to put out your sandbags and get ready or whatever you guys do when there's a tornado. I live in Virginia. We don't have that. <laughs> go to the um, basement, but yes. Go to the basement. Right? <laughs> yeah. So we start, We I really want to instill the habit of using, this is a living document. It is not a plan to me that sits on a shelf in my bookcase. It's something that we're going to be using multiple times a year um, even if it's a real, real scenario, but it's not directly impacting us at the time, you know, or watch or warning situation. It's funny that this series is called lightning in a bottle because I, I have a funny story. Uh, in a prior role, we actually activated our crisis plan when lightning struck our data center, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is not a cyber crisis, right? That, that's not a cybersecurity event. But we were so in the habit, we had that muscle memory that we knew exactly who to call, what cadence to establish, how to define what constitutes a crisis. So it was muscle memory and that, you know, even if it's not directly a cyber impact, um, you can use the plan for multiple things, right? So so getting back to the idea of plan and the plan, let me kind of poke at something that that Matt had, you know, kind of started off with, which was how old school it felt to actually pull out the book and start thumbing through the book, right? And 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 doing that kind of stuff. But but I, I want to highlight the importance of documentation of a lot of these things for a lot of reasons, right? And 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 one is you're going to have people that join the team. They're going to need to understand what the expectations are. That needs to be documented. The other thing is you can't, you you know, you have to learn, you have to evolve. And the best way I've found to do that is actually to write stuff down and to actually make conscious changes. As Miranda found out, right, some of our stuff just didn't work, right? And if you just leave the old stuff on the shelf, it doesn't get updated. So, So that documentation, even though you hope in the heat of battle, right? You're not pulling the book, that you do have the muscle memory, that you know what you're supposed to be doing, having and gone through what is an intentional process, right? I use that term a lot, right? Intentional process for how you want this motion to work. Document it, teach people what it is, practice it, practice it, practice it some more, and then change it based upon what you learn. But that documentation is absolutely critical. Yeah, and it- 
really quick, Mike, I, I thank you for that. And by no means was I saying, don't write it down. You can't audit what you don't have documented and you can't audit that which is not written down. You have to have it there. But if the only time you look at it is when lightning strikes your data center, right. you're going to have a problem, right? That, that's really, really my point. You know, I so, think the, so the let, modern... Let's talk one, one more thing, Mitch, before, before okay. we kind of drive into that. Because I've been talking to just a lot of people right now, and I'm sure like the two of you um, have staff resource allocation problems, right? You, you know, kind of not enough people, all that other stuff. And and what we're sitting here talking about is documenting and working and, and practicing and doing that. And how do we find the time, right? How do we find the time when, you know, somebody's work queue is overloaded with all the, you know, kind of active cases they have to deal with when you have, you know, um, work that that happens in terms of upgrades and all these other things that we have to do to keep our controls, you, you know, most current, I, you, you know, again, we can talk about it here from our pseudo pseudo ivory tower, right? But in the in the world, right, folks have to figure out how can I carve out this time in order to do what I know I need to do, but it feels really hard to do when you know folks are, are working at the at the red line anyway. You know, I was thinking um, the modern parlance for this would be run book. So what we would call, you know, documentation. It, it, this is very much a continuous improvement process because as you go through each time that you do it, right, you're looking at what went well, what didn't go well, what do we need to improve? And sometimes that means not just your skills and muscle memory. It's, you know what, this is kind of getting out of date, this process that we have. We need to modernize this part of it. Or the organization's changed, the structure, whatever it might be, we've changed systems. We, we, we need to plan for um, some obsolescence and some learning and an improvement. I think the hardest place to be in isn't writing the first one. Um, I had a situation where I took over an IT organization, CIO, and the the, the response plan was like eight years old and it was still talking about calling trees. I felt like I was on a prayer line, you know? <laughs> and so this person calls this person, this guy was like, Oh my God, we're playing telephone and in, in our response plan. And it was just start over. It, it, we, we couldn't modernize. Yeah. There's some good stuff in there, but th I think that's the tough spot is like, you're so far off. Let's just reset and get, and get back. Right. But I think that encompasses also what Mike is saying, right? The, the problem I think we run into, and, it, and even with the current staffing crisis that we hear about, you know, it's not really current. We've been talking about the shortage of IT and security staff for a very long time, right? I mean, this isn't a new problem. It is a difficult thing. So you, you go into a new organization, Miranda realizes I've got to write all of this new material. Then I have to train all this new material or I have to, and Mike has to, you just started, Mike. I'm assuming you're going to want to redo things as you come into that organization. You know, it, if we are pushing all of that work effort down to our staff, without giving them relief of in some way, that's a problem. And I think it ties to the question you started with, which is being able to have the conversation up and side first, getting your CFO or whomever runs your financial party organization to truly understand the importance. Getting your, if you have an operations executive who is constantly on you going, hey, your people are not, you know, 172% utilized you get on, you know, you got to start building that in so they realize that the time needed is worth slowing other things down. 
because we will never have enough staff. You know, my former boss here at Unisys used to say it all the time in budget season. Um, people would ask him, do you have enough budget to get what you need done in the security space? And he was my boss. And he started every time he would laugh. He's like, it's impossible. You can never give me enough money to do everything that me that I want to do for this corporation. It's impossible. We would be out of business tomorrow because I could spend money upon money. It's just not possible. So you have to start making those trade-offs and you have to be open and honest with your team. You have to be open and honest with your leadership of what it's going to cost and make them be involved. But but going back to your point, Mike, about kind of carving out time, I think just one thing that that has worked well for us in terms of like a really simple, practical application is, and also kind of ties into Matt's point about auditability, right? We have our plan. We know that it is never going to be finished, right? There's no such thing as a completely finished plan. And so one thing that we've started doing is as we find things that need to be changed, we just submit a simple blurb, right? What needs to be changed? Where in the document is it? Who's submitting the change and when? And then quarterly, we go back through and we we issue an official an official revision, right? And that way, we have auditability as far as what the plan said on any given date. We have traceability as far as who's changing what, um, and we don't have just a bunch of cooks in the kitchen trying to make edits to a document, you know, the, in an uncontrolled fashion. So I know it's a little thing, but like it really does help you to carve out time when you have that scheduled quarterly update or monthly update, whatever you, whatever you choose to do. Yeah. You know, it's so funny. Remember back in the day, I mean, this was a while ago, right? When Google first started and everybody started hearing about their, you know, 20% time that their engineers and employees could go and just work on, you know, kind of side projects. And you think to yourself, God, they must be in a really great business if they can have 20% of the time just to work on, you know, folks, side projects and, and, and that kind of thing. But when you think about, you know, kind of managing your work as a leader in this space, you have to think that way. Because whether it's a strategic project, whether it's updating the, the policy documents, whether it's, you know, going to class to make sure that your folks feel like they're being invested in them as practitioners and them as people. I, I mean, if you've got folks scheduled out for 100 percent, if not more, the numbers just don't work. Right. So so and, and then it gets back to the managing of expectations. And, and I know we keep getting back to the same thing, but a lot of people show up and say, oh, I want to be a CISO. And then they realize oh my God, I'm not like security anymore, right? I mean, I'm just talking to folks and I'm writing stuff down and I'm sitting in meetings and I'm I'm going to do site visits in some frigging manufacturing place in Eastern Europe. And I, you know, and I didn't think this was what I signed up for, right? And and that's the job, right? Which was what, what was so interesting when I first introduced Pragmatic CSO in 2007, because it was the first time somebody says, wait, there's a game and I'm supposed to be playing it? It's just like, yeah, man, everybody, every other functional manager in a large business understands there's a game except the security person, right? So it, it, it's one of those things that, you know, kind of, it, it's really an, an, an adaptation when folks get into this position that they may not be ready for it, honestly, that they may not be wanting or like, but that's what it is. And resisting it will just get you into trouble. Look, and it also, you got to step back and really think about how you are scheduling, right? I mean, if you, if Miranda in her role has her team and she, and I'm going to make the joke and we don't need to go down the, what, what's a work week look like, but 40 hours, you are booked 40 hours and I need 40 hours 
on, you know, that typical job description stuff, I agree with you. You've missed the point. You're never going to get to these other things that need to happen. And you have to make sure it's broken out. 100% utilized in security may only be 85% because you need the other time to do stuff. But again, that goes back to communication and being able to understand, get it others to understand what our world is really like, because it is not just ticket flows and ticket queue. That's one of the things that I, oh, sorry, go ahead, Mike. Oh, no, go ahead. I wanted to introduce something else. So wrap, so wrap that up, Miranda. I was just going to say, make the comment that it's one of the reasons why I love this field, right? You're building the plane as you're flying it, especially in an immature company where there isn't a SOC necessarily. You've got to handle those tickets. You've got to watch all the alerts, but you also need to develop a SOC strategy and you need to do, you have to do both, right? So I, I think it's fun, personally. I, I like building stuff. It is, and boy, and that's perfect for what I wanted to introduce next. We haven't talked as much or much about the introduction of change into this. You know, the, uh, suddenly we're all talking about software supply chain or supply chain integrity as an issue. Um, Matt, you've talked previously about changing role of the CISO that, you know, I'm not managing my network anymore. I'm managing, you know, an outsourced or a managed service or suppliers, you know, uh, more of a shared risk model, which I still own all the risk for, by the way. So, so it's also in the, it isn't just repetition, it's repetition of change because we want to constantly introduce the new changes, the new threats, the new business, how we're operating, whatever those factors are. Uh, That seems to me to be the, the most disruptive of this, because if it stayed the same, we could get really good at it, right? <laughs> well, it's that's also the hardest, you know, as we talk about practicing and testing, that's also what makes this so difficult. Because when you control your world, and if you think of the old school four wall tests where bad thing happens in my infrastructure, I own it all, I can go to the CIO, I can go to the head of IT, I can go, you know, Miranda was saying, I can pull in my PR person and my legal person. And a lot of corporations, the PR person's a third party and the legal team is all outsourced and your ISP is another company. And most likely some of the server infrastructure you're talking about, well, that's a, that's a third party as well. And Ooh, we outsource this piece and this piece and tying that all together. That's key. And that's why having a documented plan is so important and practicing is so important. You know, we, we've run into situations here where the failure of a test wasn't people not knowing what to do, the failure in the test was that the person or organization that we relied on that is not a badged Unisys employee was unresponsive. We have an SLA, we have requirements, they didn't respond. Well, they are no longer going to be in our critical chain. It's just not going to happen, especially if they were pre-notified, we're going to be doing this. And it changed our whole TPRM program, which is another episode, the third-party risk management program, where if if one of our main suppliers fails one of our tabletops, they can no longer be considered a tier one. They're out, right? So you can start really building because you are right. It is so few people in one of our Crisis tests are actually badged employees. Mm-hmm. Are you all seeing that, Mike? I mean, you do a lot of research. Are you starting to see that as well? I, you know, yes. I mean, I think that we're we're in a situation where we are an independent, uh, an interdependent society, 
right? Yeah. And and you know we can talk about ecosystems, you know about, but you, you know you mentioned my servers somewhere else, right? My servers in the cloud, right? And, I, and and all my data is in a variety of different SaaS players, and 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 I've got to understand how this attack has proliferated, where are they coming, and it may not even be within my stuff. Right. So we would normally just get we would see something because we would be able to track, you know, remember, man, old school, right? We'd be able to track network telemetry and traffic and we would know something bad. We don't get to see that stuff anymore. Right. So we've got to get a lot better at, you know, the detection side, IAM, but our um, response motions have to factor in the reality that I may have to shut down. Office 365 for a certain amount of time until I figure out what the hell happened. And that means my business stops. And I have to be able to, again, communicate up to manage expectations that says, by the way, in the old days, if I had a problem with, you know, an, an email attack in Eastern Europe, I could shut down Eastern Europe. That's not an option anymore, right? We have everything in the same place or Salesforce or Workday or whatever big SaaS player you use. The fact is, this is so interdependent. We have to have plans for the fact that I've got to be able to remediate in these platforms that I don't control. And that is just, uh, again, what you talk about, things getting more complicated, right? I, I missed a day. <laughs> I mean, it's like, holy crap. Not only, you know, we talk about supply chain and, you know, I'm getting all yeah. these libraries and I'm building all these things. But, man, now I've, I've just got, you know, I'm dependent on all these other, you know, kind of organizations in order for me just to figure out if I lost data, right? If I lost data. I miss the days of being able to call Josh in the data center going, unplug this port real quick. That's Thanks. I'll be, I'll be over shortly. Just, just, exactly. just, just, just pull it out real quick. And I know that segment's offline now. You can't do it anymore. You're right. It's the, the way VMs work, the way the virtualized environment works, getting something off of a network is not easy. I mean, there's no blinky just, buttons, no blinky flashy lights to say that. There isn't. And, and that's kind of one of the, that's why one of the things I kind of counsel folks to do is, um, you know, I mean, not literally, right, but proverbially burn up your plan every year. And if you were to start from scratch, what would it look like? Because I'll tell you, if you're 90% cloud, the plan you built six years ago, you, you know, when most of your stuff was on-prem, I mean, you know, that's a case where you probably do have to burn it up because your motions are just totally different. And it's a good exercise, right, for the leader of the security team to go, if I could zero this thing out and I didn't have, you know, kind of uh, installed base and constraints and, and budget, what would this thing look like? And then you can start to pick from those things and say, how can I start to get there? And that starts to develop your strategic roadmap. But without, you know, kind of being able to do that, you just do more of what you've always done, even though the underlying infrastructure has totally shifted under our feet. And in a lot of cases, you're so busy, you don't even see it. So that to me, that's a very, you know, productive exercise or whatever it is, right? September, or whenever your fiscal year ends, or whatever, when your budgeting process starts, I don't care, right? But at least once a year, go back in there and zero it out and just say, listen, what, what would we do if we could just start over again? Well, you bring up a really good point, Mike, but in that same vein, I think people are starting, you know, the industry is coming around to accepting the fact that like your, your incident response plan needs to be updated annually. You need to test it annually, but they often so focus on the response element. Like, are you also testing how capable you are of actually detecting something in the first place? And this is one of the things that I would do, you know, coming from an MSSP, anytime a client told me that they had a pen test or they did a red team exercise, I wanted to go back and see what percentage of the kill chain did my team actually detect? And if there were things that were missing, you know, we only can alert on what we see. 
So if there's elements of the tech stack that we don't have visibility into, we're not going to alert on it. Um, and I think that's often a thing that people miss. We actually went back and did an exercise uh, recently mapping our tech stack to the MITRE ATT&CK um, framework, right? And we went through each TTP and said, could we detect this with the technology and the infrastructure that we have today? Yes, no. And we developed a heat map over time and said we could probably detect 60% of this or 20% of this, and here's our weak spots. That can help spur additional investment too in terms of you got to build out the, the tool set that you're using in order to, to start on this in the first place, right? I got to tell you, I, I, the theme. <laughs> I, because I love what you're doing. I couldn't agree with it more. And now you can focus. The, so you go through, instead of you running tests, because you, know, you said it at the beginning, Miranda, and I loved it. It's, it's, it's not always about the test. But so now instead of you running a test on an area, you know, you only see 10% on. Why bother? You know, you didn't need to be tested for that failure. If, if your team goes, we would see 100% of the time or 96%, that's, you can start focusing these things because now you can prove to yourself, yes, everything is really working, especially if you're using third parties. But doing a map to, to MITRE, whatever framework you like, I, I love doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, as long as you get that validation at least third party. I've tried that in organizations and like, we see everything. And you're like, really? And can we all just take a a second and and be thankful for the fact that a couple of years ago, we got the MITRE ATT&CK framework, right? Because what that did is that allowed us to standardize our vernacular for what these TTPs look like Mm -hmm. before you had to deal with some, let's call them overly priced response firm that, you know, kind of had a lot of this information and, and they would help you map it. But, you know, most organizations that was out of reach for what they had to do, unless they could pay a $250,000 a year retainer, which not a lot of organizations could do. So, so what I found and, and, and even better, a lot of the monitoring tools that we're using now are mapping their findings to the framework. So you can start to really pinpoint not just, you know, what I have coverage and that's a tabletop, Miranda, and that's fantastic, right? But in actuality, you can start to see the telemetry that's coming in and and identifying where you may have gaps in your stack, not based upon your tabletop, based upon the data, right? And, and, And that just, it really changes everything from the standpoint of helping folks understand how many different ways you can get hurt, where before it was really only the, you know, the experts, right? You know, kind of the lean forward folks, the folks that really understood enterprise security. And now this kind of tool is accessible for all. And, and that's really just the huge gift to our community. Most of them, albeit don't understand what that means and don't understand how to use it, but at least it's out there. And it's something that, you know, again, we can start evangelizing and the whole industry has been um, with the fact of how powerful that is. Now they've got one for containers. It really is. I mean, it's it's just fantastic from the standpoint of, you know, somebody that's been struggling to help organizations that don't know what they're doing to sort of know what they're doing for a long, long time. I think a collective moment of thanks for MITRE. One thing that I am like super appreciative too is that they not only, you know, are standardizing on a, on a set of terminology and, and codes that we can use to talk about TTPs, but they also go out and rate the products. You know, you get hit with so much vendor marketing material and Gartner reports and market analysis, but I want to see how did it actually perform in a real test? And MITRE publishes all that. And I'm not going to name any names, but you can go out there and see which vendors are doing a better job detecting the entire attack framework than others. And it's, it's great. 
Yeah. And especially when you move to that automation, they're also able to say, yeah, it detected and it can do these things in these scenarios instead of it being a, well, that's what the salesperson told me it could do. So So before the end of this episode, you're watching, you need, everyone needs to go out on their Twitter account and Thank MITRE. So just tweet it now. <laughs> Get it over with. Just we really well, everybody says, oh, the government doesn't do anything for us. But, you know, and there are some cases where that kind of funding has been extremely helpful. So just wanna... make sure you spell MITRE correctly. Yeah. Otherwise, DeWalt or some tool manufacturers can be like, I'm not <laughs> no, sure no, what you're no, talking no. about. Yeah, but a a right? and, it's not a MITRE. And, and when you when you talk to Europeans, they call it MITRE. I'm like, right. what are you talking about? Mitra? I don't know what you're saying. And then I'm like, oh, Mitre, got it. You know, it's just, I was, I thought that was very funny because it wasn't just one, it was all of them that I've spoken yeah. to. That's how they pronounce it because that's so how wanna, it's spelled. I want to introduce something that I think has the potential to kind of really upend all of our worlds. And and here's what I mean by this, not to be, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying like, you know, something's going to, going to end the world here on us, but What's happening in in whether it's the infrastructure stack and the in the provider stack, the software world, you know, going to cloud native and DevOps and all these processes, you know, I've come to this mindset of I have to stop thinking of things that are in a state and remain in a state and think of the entire environment, the ecosystem as a fluid is constantly changing. At any point in time, you might even might dip into it, but even while you have, while you're dipping into it, it's changing on you. So it's, how do we create processes and responses to the APIs that I might be using or might have created in our development teams, you know, half a dozen, wherever they are all over the world that could have changed, you know, in the, you know, five minutes ago, I'm using a brand new API we just created in something that got pushed out in a couple of microservices in this app in this region. It's not a static world that we live in that we can say, okay, this is what it was like. Let's assess what happened or how do we respond to it? How do we deal with the challenge like that? Or do you buy into that premise? Maybe that's just how I view it. I, I mean, look, I'll I'll jump into it. Uh, this is where having it, 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 look, this is the core of the company that you all are a part of. This is, for what you're saying, this is why SDLC is so important to me, right? That documented flow so that you can have a way to go back and figure out what's where. I mean, uh, Miranda talked at the beginning of this about Log4j. I mean, that alone should have been a wake-up call for every single organization on the planet. I I can't tell you how many times when we were doing our analysis, we would go through and we'd be on the phone with major vendors like, ah, we're not susceptible. We don't use that. And my team was like, really? Because we ran these tests and we got into the system. How how are you not? And they'd hang up, they'd call us back. They're like, yeah, whoops, we do have that (laughs) thing that's sitting here, but you don't need it. So we're going to remove it in a patch that's going to come out in four months. And, you know, that, that to me is about really having a software development lifecycle, having books that come out of that SDLC that go into your IR plan, because for us, we've tied that all together. If we have an incident, we're able to go and look and see in our documentation before we start just running mass scans against, you know, some piece of code and, you know, spending the money on a, you know, vendor A or a vendor B to go look or use licenses. I can now look inside of these books that we get out of it, um, it it becomes very powerful. But to your point, it is important because you could launch something today, think it's the greatest thing in the world, and tomorrow some Minecraft gamer breaks into it. 
I'm, I'm not trying to give a long reference. I think you have to expect but... that's going to happen. Of course. I think you have to expect that's going to happen. You know, and, we and, always... And why the agility is so important. And, and one of the things that's been cool about spending a lot more time with DevOps folks and continuing to spend more time with DevOps folks is that, one, from a management standpoint, they understand the idea of unplanned work. Right. And, and and managing, you know, kind of the fact that you're going to have issues and, and you know, kind of so back to the you know thing we were talking about 20 minutes ago on this front, but also from a, a building in um, a security testing mentality to every stage of the development are things that we in security need to learn. Right. And some of the more advanced groups that I've worked with um, have a what they call now a detection engineering team. Right. It's a software group that is building detections that they ultimately put into their monitoring environment, but they run it through a pipeline, right? They burn stuff in, they monitor it, you know, to see what happens. They they tune it, they go back, they, you know, and they're constantly testing this stuff for how it works. And it is a software discipline. And again, when you, when you talk about talking to some folks that don't know what they stepped into, it's just like, oh, wait. So I'm not managing the firewalls anymore. I actually have to spend all this time with these other people. Oh, and I've got to manage software people too, because I've got a bunch of folks that are scripting out things in my in my infrastructure. And now I got to understand all that stuff. So the skills constantly evolve for senior security folks. And, and it gets back to, you know, we talked about the importance of investing in our people and, and sending them off to training and carving out time and protecting time for that it, it applies the same to us, right? If we're not starting to learn about some of these motions, if we're not working with our, you know, dev teams and the CTO group, because they're starting to, you know, migrate to, you know, these types of, of agile, you know, infrastructure environments, how are we going to protect it, right? How are we going to protect it? You know, I think the thing I, I I get out of this that I think the audience needs to grasp is for a lot of organizations, the thought of having your CTO, your head of engineering as part of your corporate crisis, as part of your incident response program is not even in the realm of what are you talking about? And I think Mitch, what you've brought out, and I think it's a really good point is they must be. They must be because if you don't have the books, if you don't have an SBOM, a software bill of materials, if you don't have a program around that, you're not that different from most organizations on the planet. I mean, most organizations couldn't spell S-bomb, let alone have an S-bomb that's worth its weight in anything. So you have to have the people who are responsible for that tied in so you could be working with them on a regular basis. Because, I mean, let's be honest, coding, if you do a lot of your own coding in your organization for your own products and your own stuff, well, there's, there's where most of your issues are going to be. Well, we're coming up on, uh, we've, we've really spent a lot of time together on this. Uh, you know, we should divide this into the 4.1 episode, 4.2, so we can continue this more. Um, how much just this wrap up with a parting thought? I know there's, we've really emphasized the documentation and the process and uh, building the muscle memory. Is it, uh, Mike, you want to, uh, anything you'd like to also get out there that maybe hasn't been said yet? Um, I, I don't I mean, I think we covered a, a lot of really, you know, kind of good and important stuff. But but, you know, to me, the, the real pinpoint on this is 
as leaders, we have to continue to evolve. We have to lead our organizations in terms of, you know, practicing and, and building a culture where you can experiment, where you can fail, where you can um, really push what we need to do because our world continues to change. I mean, it's just fundamentally different than when Matt and I worked together, what, 20 years ago? Yikes. Um, Maybe longer. Um, You know, and it's different than it was 15, 10, 5. And it'll be different two years from now based on how quickly things are working. So if we don't have that mentality and we're not bringing that to the leadership of our security group, it's just not going to work. I mean, it's just not going to work. Miranda. Yeah, I think I think that's a very good point. And I think the other thing that I would add to it is just when you're considering how to test your plan, you need to think of off the wall scenarios, right? Not just uh, tabletop exercises, um, red team exercises where it's maybe unknown or unplanned um, or, you know, those kind of watch and warning scenarios that, that mimic real world or that are, in fact, real world scenarios. So I think you just have to hit the testing from multiple different angles. Otherwise, you know, and going back to our other comment about testing response and testing detection, right? Your testing plan needs to be more than just an annual exercise that you go to. It's not a fire drill. It's it's something that you, yeah, like you said, you have to develop the muscle memory. Okay, Matt, bring it home and I'll, I'll wrap it up for us. No problem. So one of the things we say a lot in CISO Talks, and, and I say a lot out there, is as you're hearing this, it, you may be thinking to yourself, well, I don't have that plan. I, I've never done a tabletop. I've never thought to map something. To, I have no clue how to do all that. And what I would say to those that are listening to this that, that may not have really an understanding of where to begin, you don't start with a blank piece of paper. There is enough material on the internet and there are enough of us in industry that want to help, right? It It is not rocket science and it's not something you should do as an individual sport. Let us help you. Even if you don't have budget to hire a big consulting firm, um, you don't have the the money to go out and and buy all of this stuff. There are plenty of groups within your region, within your industry that you can utilize to help you get going. Because again, this is a team sport. And no matter what company you work for, we're all on the same side of this, right? We are protecting ourselves from an adversary or group of adversaries. So, you know, reach out to us, you know, we can be found all over the place, you know, on social media, reach out to others in industry and, and don't start from scratch. Awesome. I think you're Those are all fantastic points. Because uh, we're cherry on the top. I'll add to this is, this dynamic nature of our environment, I think we need to start thinking about continuous response, not incident response. It's much easier to 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 grab onto something that's in motion and execute the things that need to now happen in addition to what's already happening, as opposed to firing up the old generators, you know, and, and kind of getting the flywheel going to to get this up because things are happening that quickly. So if we have this built into our processes, if we have the response built into the flow, the workflows that are happening, whether it's across the software organization, it's across the dynamic infrastructure that's also software um, or, or processes themselves, we can respond much more accurately and quickly, frankly, and adjust to what's happening in the moment. So I think that's the world we already are in and we're figuring out how to adopt to. So consider that as you're, as you're updating or writing or starting your, 
incident or your continuous response plan. So great thanks, Matt, uh, co-hosting here today. Uh, of course, uh, we're great to have you back again, Miranda Ritchie. And hopefully we won't have quite as long a gap to get you back on the show. I know you've been busy with starting this new job and we're very happy for you. And Mr. Rothman, great to be working with you and talking DevOps and cloud native and cybersecurity. And, you know, it's, it's just mind expanding. So <laughs> thank you to your audience. Um, we have another episode in our masterclass series coming up. So please tune in and thank you for watching. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.